watching the man, the love of your life, literally um, fall apart and die in front of your eyes is the most gruelling thing, one of the most gruelling things, aside from all the things that people do think of, you know, and going to bed by yourself every night and waking up just to the dog in the morning and, and those sorts of things, you know, you expect that. I wasn't expecting this shock of n- having no dreams anymore. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Gender equity is fundamental to a good life. And yet we live in a society where the pay gap between men and women has been stubbornly stuck at around 15%. Uh, In ASX 100 firms, men make up two-thirds of managers and nine out of 10 CEOs. Uh, Over the course of this podcast, two out of three of my interviewees have been men. So I'm not doing particularly well on the gender equity front. Libby Lyons was appointed Director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency in October 2015. Uh, She monitors over 12,000 employers and more than 4 million Australian employees. In leading the agency, uh, she makes sure that we have the proper reporting uh, of gender pay equity, but also that we think strategically about how to close gender pay gaps. Libby's had a fascinating career, starting as a primary school teacher, moving into corporate affairs in mining, uh, and working on the boards of non-profit organisations, uh, SIDS and Kids, Kids WA and CalParan. Uh, she also has a particularly interesting political pedigree uh, as the granddaughter of uh, Dame Enid Lyons, the first woman elected to the federal parliament. Uh, and we'll delve into much of that personal background uh, through the course of this interview. Libby, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. So let's start with your grandmother. Uh, you, uh, you had the privilege to, uh, to, to know this extraordinary woman, the, uh, the, the wife of Joe Lyons, who, uh, who di- dies in office, enters parliament in 1943 with this lovely first speech about being a new broom through parliament, um, and mother of 11 children. What are your memories of her? Well, growing up, um, I have fabulous memories as a, a little girl because when, when I was born, I was born in Devonport in Tasmania and we didn't move to what we called the mainland until I was about 10. And um, as a little girl, I remember going up to their home, the family home, and uh, Nan, as we called her, would make scones and we would have sing-alongs around the piano. Um, And the interesting thing was that my grandmother was born a Methodist and converted to Catholicism to marry Joe. And so uh, having been brought up a Methodist, she taught us all these Methodist hymns that were really sort of quite rousing and quite, when I look back, really quite funny. But um, (laughs) so I remember all these fun times with her, spending time. She had an amazing garden that she used to do herself and my father used to help that a lot, spending time in her garden. 
and also um, met incredible people through her. I remember being a very little girl and meeting an amazing man. Um, at the time, he was called Pastor Doug Nichols, and of course, he became the first um, Aboriginal governor in Australia, but the, and uh, an and the governor for South Australia. And I remember being absolutely blown away by him as this very little girl because he was uh, just such a gentle, really gentle, and for for someone who was of small statute, big man. And uh, so I met people like that through mm. my grandmother and I met Dame Zara Holt through my grandmother. So it was just the people that passed through her lives and um, Nan herself, she was, um, she was larger than life and you couldn't help but be um, in awe of her in many ways. But she was still my Nan. <laughs> uh, would she have called herself a feminist? You know, I've often thought about that. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think she believed that uh, women had the capability to do whatever they needed to do and, in fact, uh, at times had to do things that were really weren't expected of women. So, for instance, if we look at the war periods, you know, the women were the ones that kept the economy basically ticking over in Australia and the UK and, mm. and all the other countries that were involved in wars. So I think that she just believed that it was about getting on and doing what you had to do and that uh, your gender shouldn't get in the way. Now, you know, if, if that's a definition that feminists use, then she was a feminist. But I don't think she would have called herself one. And uh, in what ways did she influence you, apart from the, the people that you, uh, you, you got to meet? I think with her, and I also had an amazing mother as a role model, mm. um, who, and my mother was always the one that said to me, you know, just get out there and do what you have to do. You, you have been born in a time different to me where you have so many more opportunities than I ever had to travel, to see the world. Just get out there and do it. Don't think that at a young age you've got to get married and have children. That can come later if that's what life blesses you with. Mm. Um, so so with, with my mother, who was uh, an amazing role model, and she worked, uh, you know, whilst my father was in politics, she supported him, and then she got out and worked. Um, and with my grandmother, who just also just got on and did it, you know, we grew up that you just got on and did it. So that's what I've done. <laughs> And your your father, uh, Kevin Lyons, is also actively involved in politics, Deputy Premier of uh, Tasmania, involved in uh, uh, the sudden ending of a, of a government there, uh, after which uh, the family uh, uh, quite soon leaves, ta leaves Tasmania. Uh, how did you find growing up as the, the child of a, a very well-known politician? Uh, it's not easy. And it affects... I was one of six. I am one of six. It affects different siblings in different ways and um, being in that spotlight is tough. It's tough for kids. It's tough for partners and it's tough for kids. Uh, I under absolutely understand why people want to go into politics. I believe in public service. My grandparents, my father believed in public service. 
but it does take its toll on family and I've seen it from both sides. It didn't bother me mm. um, other than give me this uh, appreciation for people in public service, a great appreciation and it, I think it's really sad today that uh, politicians are oh, denigrated and uh, treated poorly, I believe, because the average person doesn't realise the self-sacrifice that goes into being a politician. And they also forget that politicians are people just like them uh, and could just as well be living next door to them. Uh, so that, that really bothers me because we need politicians and we need good people to be attracted into politics. And if we continue to see this uh, pillarising of public figures uh, the way we do at the moment, you know, we're not going to attract our brightest and best into this really, really important role of public service. It's a really important point, although I should also caveat by saying that there's an enormous amount of positive feedback one gets as a, as a politician, uh, some of that uh, undeserved as, as, as well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real privilege to serve in the, in, in the role, and certainly from my perspective. Um, you, uh, you, what was your, um, uh, your main focus at school and then in your further, further studies? What did you enjoy the most? I wasn't a great student, actually, Andrew. I, um, <laughs> I didn't enjoy school. And uh, it's interesting, I'm now married to um, a former uh, Oxford lecturer who tells me that I never had the right teachers. <laughs> uh, so, and he's probably right. I mean, I did have, there were some outs, you know, there were a couple of outstanding teachers that I had, but uh, I didn't enjoy school. Um, and so I've always considered myself not a good student. Uh, I passed. Uh, I always managed to pass. That was fortunate. Um, but I was always more interested in going out and doing other things, being out and, um, you know, talking to people and, you know, I, I just love people. So for me, uh, studying was always very, very tricky. Um, but I, I did pass. In those days it was HSC. I passed much to the delight of my mother because the morning the results came out, um, my mother and one of my elder sisters spent two hours on the phone discussing what they were going to do with me when I failed. So <laughs> I was quite happy that I passed uh, and I did pass. And I went and I started um, commerce at Melbourne University. And I remember it was the week before Easter and um, somebody that was in one of my tutorials came up to me and said, have you finished your first your assignment that's due in today and I said what assignment I think I spent too much time in the pub <laughs> and the coffee shop um and I thought you know this isn't working for me and so I went and deferred my studies then um with a very heavy heart and feeling uh, uh, you know trepidation went and told my parents that I had just deferred and my mother said We've been waiting for this. Uh, so it was no surprise. And isn't that the wonderful thing about mothers? They always seem to know. Yes. Um, and so I took that year off and worked the rest of that year off. And then I decided that um, I would do primary teaching. Uh, I'd always loved children and it was a great way to be with people all the time. Uh, so I did uh, primary teaching and, uh, and, and enjoyed it. But 
probably the hardest job I've ever done in my life. And, uh, and I have the utmost admiration for teachers because it is a very tough gig and people don't appreciate what a hard job it is. So uh, I lasted there for a few years and then I, I, I moved into corporate life. <laughs> what was your favourite grade to teach? Well, I, I only... Um, I started out actually teaching the Littleys and uh, I think it was... I did a year one and two and I was teaching in the northern suburbs of Melbourne in a Catholic school and we had big classes. So even with the Littleys there, I think that we had 33 in my class. Um and uh, the other teachers used to laugh at me because I've, I've never spoken down to children. I speak to children just as I speak to anybody else. And they would laugh at the way I would talk to the, 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 the children because I would talk to them as I, you know, talk to you. Uh, but I think the most interesting time for me was when I taught year five. I had 40 in my class um, in my first year out. And that was a big big eye-opener for me uh, and it was a hard job and I recognised then that the only way I could really teach that number was to aim it at the middle the middle ground, that the bright kids would always challenge themselves and find other things to do and you could also get them to then help some of those that were struggling and that the kids that weren't, that you know, that were struggling, you just had to do the best that you can, you could to, to get them up to speed. And that's where you would, I would use those, the, the brighter, faster kids to try and help them. So it was really, um, for a young woman, when I look back now, it was a great job. And it gave me wonderful, wonderful skills and experience that I continue to use to this day. So then you make a transition from one of the most female-dominated occupations in Australia to one of the most male-dominated, moving into to working in the mining industry. What led to that? Um, there was sort of a bit of a transition period there. I went and spent a number of years living in London uh, and uh, worked in IT there, actually, which was very, very interesting. And, uh, and it's interesting because in those days, IT makes me sound like I'm really old, but I don't think I'm really old. But anyway, in those days, IT You just packed lots of interesting <laughs> things in. In those days, IT was actually very um, gender balanced. Uh, if we look at IT today, from the statistics our agency produces, it's very male dominated. So, so in those years, it's moved dramatically from being a gender balanced industry mm. to very much a male dominated industry, which is interesting. And I wonder whether it's got to do with pay um, and I wonder whether it's got to do with the fact that in uh, the years that followed my IT experience, people were expected to work very long hours to meet mm. schedules and program project plans that were probably very unrealistic and, and maybe that's, that's what um, pushed... Uh, sort of the women out and, and saw more men coming in. I don't know. I haven't analysed it. Maybe a research project for us. But um, but that was interesting. And uh, so I worked in IT and uh, then um, met my late husband in London and we moved back to Australia when I was pregnant. And it was from there I moved into um, corporate affairs type roles and ended up in, in the resources industry. 
and it's um, I actually love working with men. Uh, you know, it, it, it's always a challenge, uh, and it also I think, and this is where I think you know my mother and my grandmother really come to the fore, because I just got on with it, and no matter what, no matter what hurdles I came up against or what blocks mm. I came up mm. against. You know, you just get on with it. I just got on with it. And so I never considered... When I look back, I think, oh, goodness, that shouldn't have happened or I don't think that would have happened if I'd been a man. But I just got on with it yeah. because that's what, that's all I knew to do. And uh, I'm not sure how the timing of this uh, works, but you did then lose your, lose your husband, in t- uh, your first husband in 2010, uh, uh, Michael Jones, who who died of a died of a brain tumor, um, it's hard to imagine a more shocking a shocking event for uh, somebody than to than to lose lose their life partner. How did that How did that shape you and your trajectory? Um, gee, it you know, it taught me the hard way uh, that your life literally can change in a heartbeat. Um, you know, one day he seemed reasonably okay with a bit of a problem with his eyesight um, and literally two days later he was diagnosed with a brain tumour. Um, so it, you know, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It certainly made me stronger um, and it may, it's made me look and appreciate life in, so, in, in such a different way. Mm. Um, I think that... Uh, Watching the man, the love of your life, literally um, fall apart and die in front of your eyes is the most gruelling thing, one of the most gruelling things. I I can't imagine losing a child Mm. and uh, that that to me would be worse. Uh, But this, you know, would play at a pretty close second, I think. it is, it's, you know, I think the hardest thing for me was after he died, my dreams. I didn't have any dreams it, because everything that you do with your partner, it's about, it's about the now, of course, but it's about what you're going to do. Mm. Oh, you know, um, once Charlie's left school, uh, you know, why don't we just take six months every year and go and work in Africa or, you know, whatever that dream may be. Mm, mm. And all of a sudden they've gone because that person's gone and that person that you made those dreams with has gone. And and that was probably the hardest thing to come to terms with, aside from all the things that people do think of, you know, and going to bed by yourself every night and waking up just to the dog in the morning and and those sorts of things, you know, you expect that. I wasn't expecting this shock of having no dreams anymore. And uh, and I found that particularly, uh, particularly difficult. I think... The thing that kept me going was uh, my son. Um, he'd lost his dad and so he needed a strong mum 
And so you just, again, you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and on you go. My dog, who used to come up to the bed, the side of the bed every morning and uh, wake me up and say, come on, I need to go for a walk. Because to be frank, there were days where I just wanted to pull the duvet over my head and forget about life. But I got up every morning and I took the dog for a walk. So that was fabulous. But I did... um, after about about four months after Michael died, I did fall in a heap and I know that that was the thing that really, really worried him. He, uh, he, it was like he saw it coming. Um, and, um, but I sought help. Um, my sisters in particular were just amazing. I had a wonderful GP and I spent time, I went and saw him and spent time with him Um, I went on medication for depression, uh, which was fantastic. And, you know, I sought the right help. Um, And to anybody out there who's experiencing anything, any um, who's facing tragedy or who's faced tragedy and is trying to live through it and you feel like, you know, you are in that big black hole, there are people to help you and you've just got to reach out and... And and if you know, I think it's particularly hard if you've always been a very self-sufficient, strong personality, um, it's almost harder at times to reach out if you have been like that because, you know, you think that you're going to be able to get over it yourself. Mm. You can't often. Sometimes you just can't and sometimes you need that little bit of extra help. And uh, And as I say, with my sister's support... I got that little bit of extra help and with the support of my doctor and, um, you know, I'm here today fit and healthy and better than ever. But but that taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. Were there aspects of your grandmother's experience that you drew on? She talks about uh, the decision to enter public life in 1943 as being partly a response to the depression she experienced on, on losing her husband. Um, actually, you know, on days on days when I felt particularly down, I would think of her. She lost her husband when she was thirty nine. Uh, actually, she was even younger than thirty nine, I think. But she she lost her husband as a very young woman and had eleven children, six of whom were still at school. Um, I was um, in my late forties and had one child. Um, you know, and, and I would sort of sit myself up and say, what have you got to complain about? Mm. And, uh, you know, look what she had to manage. And, of course, in those days there weren't pensions or anything like that. And um, and so she had to work. I mean, they did change the rules um, as a result of, uh, I understand, as a result of her being um, left a widow. Um, but... Yes, I, I think that's the other thing too, is that no matter how bad you think things are, there is always somebody who's who's worse off and you've got to, I don't know, I, 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 I had to keep reminding myself not to wallow, I think, that, that there were others. And so looking at my grandmother and what she had had to face, and she had to face it publicly too. She, she you know, she, she was the wife of the Prime Minister. Mm. Her grieving and her mourning were quite public. I didn't have that pressure on me. Our first Prime Minister to die in office. Yes. 
Yeah, and, you know, regardless of your politics, whatever you read about him, he was well-loved. Mm, mm. and, and they also had the most amazing relationship. I mean, they genuinely loved each other to bits. And if you read some of their letters to one another, they're, they're very intimate and very loving. And um, so for her to have lost that love of her life, uh, I know how she felt, but, um, it, but hers was worse in that it was also public mm. and that would be tough. And your... You weren't uh, publicly invisible working in BHP corporate affairs, but certainly your uh, your current work at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency is uh, is more public. Uh, what made you put your hand up for that role? I think um, I'd come to a point in my corporate life where uh, I needed something more. I needed another challenge. I believe in public service. And I knew that at some stage in my life um, I, would, I would become some sort of a public servant. It, you know, it, it runs through my veins, um, that belief. Uh, so I, I also felt that it was just... Um, it was, you know, sometimes in life just the right thing comes along and you think gee, I haven't, you know, if you looked at me on paper, I probably didn't have the right qualifications in that I'd had no experience in working in gender equality and whatever, but hey, I was a woman, I'd started out as a teacher, I was finishing, you know, I had my career in the male-dominated industries. My experience alone, I mm. think, um, gave me, uh, I think, what was needed. I think the other thing too was I... I knew the burden that reporting was placing on corporates, having come from a corporate, and I wanted to see what I could do to um, ease that burden a little bit so that we could get some get organisations realising the importance of the data that they were providing to us and the importance of how this data could actually drive change. So this isn't a policy or a politics podcast, uh, and there are clearly a lot of public policy levers that, uh, that ne need to be pulled in order to close the gender pay gap. But let me focus a little on the, uh, the work that individuals can do within their organisations. Um, to start with managers, uh, what should managers do if they want to uh, have, have their organisation become uh, a more equitable uh, place to work? I think the first thing is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that more women working full-time or more women working at all in the workplace means that your job is at risk. It's not. It's one of these situations where the more women we get into the workplace and into the workforce, the bigger the pie becomes. It doesn't become smaller. It becomes bigger and it's about supply and demand. So that's the first thing. Don't be afraid. And if you are afraid... Talk to people, talk through your fears in relation to, you know, a, another woman sitting beside you doing the job instead of a man. You know, but, um, sort of keeping it all inside isn't going to help and there is no need to be fearful. The second thing I'd say is, um, uh, you know, Managing up is important in some ways. You've got to ask the questions of your superiors. 
what are we doing? What are we doing to improve the numbers of women in the work in in our workplace? What are we doing to ensure that everybody can access flexible work arrangements, particularly men? You know, we know from studies that we've done and research that we've done that the normalisation of flexibility is the key driver to getting women into leadership roles. We know that. So, you know, you've got to start asking those questions um, of, of those that are above you and you've got to start um, asking for the information about your firm. Uh, you know, the one thing that I would advocate is that every if every organisation in Australia analysed their data around gender composition, flexibility, the uptake of flexibility, their pay gap, you know, all those factors that we know um, feed into gender inequality as we have it today, if they just analyse their data to find out where their hotspots were in their organisation and put an action plan in place to address it, mm. Uh, and, and, and we don't have to solve all these things overnight. You know, it can be over a five- or six-year period, maybe even a ten-year period if there are some big issues. But if we put them in place, then we wouldn't have this issue. And, and I am a firm believer that every workplace, no matter what it is, no matter whether it's in a hospital or whether it's down a mine shaft, whatever place we work in should represent the communities in which we live. And they don't. They absolutely don't right now. So, you know, it's, it's down to each and every organisation to do its bit. And as individuals and employees, the one thing that we can do is start asking the questions and start asking for the data about our organisations, educating ourselves, I mm, bet. Mm. And there's one other thing that I think we can all do, and that is challenge our thinking around the sorts of jobs that women have tradi traditionally done and men have traditionally done. So in Australia today, um, the two female-dominated industries are healthcare and social assistance and education and training. The male-dominated industries um, are mining and resources and construction. Now, the male-dominated industries are actually the industries that, where growth is slowing. The industries that are really growing in Australia and projected to grow hugely are, of course, the female-dominated ones. We've got an ageing population, our disability the, you know, programs are changing, um, and yet 80% of employees in healthcare and social assistance are women. Women don't own the licence on caring. Men actually make great carers. And so we need to start challenging each other and challenging our children and challenging our teachers and challenging any everyone in our community about the sorts of jobs that traditionally men and women have done. Because in an age of casualisation, where, where, you know, a lot of men are, are having to move to casual work because of the male-dominated industries and, and, and the fact that they're not growing. In, in that sense, 
you can actually have a really rewarding career in healthcare. Do you have any advice for people who are those sort of pioneers in industries, whether they're finding themselves in the situation of being the only woman in a male-dominated room or the only man in a woman, do female-dominated room, uh, you know, much as your much as your grandmother was in the federal parliament and the legislative legislative council? Again, I think it's don't be afraid. Um, I think. <laughs> The one thing that I've always done throughout my career, and let me tell you, I've sat in many meetings where I've been the only woman, was I've, I've, I've never been afraid to ask a question if I didn't understand because what's the point in me sitting there if I'm not understanding what go, what's going on? And invariably I would ask a question that I would think is probably, you know, you'd sit there and you'd have all this self-doubt and think, oh, my God, I'm so stupid, I don't understand that, but I'll ask anyway. And invariably I'd, I'd, I'd walk out of the meeting and then someone would sidle up to me and say, oh, I'm so pleased you asked that question because I didn't have a clue what was going on either. <laughs> so, you know, don't be afraid. Be yourself. Don't try and be somebody else. As my grandmother said, she, there's this beautiful quote, I wished I'd brought it with you, but with me, um, but it was it's something along the lines of she, she used to say that um, women have special attributes um, uh, and that um, that but we also have special problems and that if we um, are to reach our full potential and if we are to all work together, then um, we need to, you know, do just that, work together. Mm. And women shouldn't imitate men. The world's far too male already. So be yourself. Don't try and be somebody else. Don't imitate those others around you uh, and just because they're all men or whatever. Be yourself. And, and it's hard. But actually when you can take your true self to work, um, you're far more successful. You know, it can have its downsides occasionally, but but by and large, being able to take your true self to work, uh, it makes your life so much easier and people know where they stand with you. Mm. Uh, and uh, a lot of the gender pay gap seems to relate to differences in child-rearing child rearing, uh, and uh, the... Uh, we're in a society where traditionally a lot of that work's been, uh, been been done by women, and so women tend to take larger uh, uh, gaps from their careers, and therefore come back in often uh, with uh, at a lower level. Um, you've, uh, I know, spoken in the past not only about the benefits to women of having more equality in childcare, but also the benefits for kids, and particularly the example of uh, of your late husband Michael taking a couple of years out from. Aboriginal Legal Aid Service in Darwin to uh, to, to look uh, look after Charlie, who I think was ten at the time. Uh, so, do you think there's there's creative ways in which we can encourage parents to have more equality in how they raise kids? Absolutely, I think that that time that those couple of years that Charlie had with Michael. When I look back now, I mean, you see, you never know what's going to happen in the future, don't you? I mean, what what a wonderful period for Charlie to have spent with his dad and and Michael did things with Charlie uh, that I would never have done you know he started up the school basketball team well I mean I wouldn't have done that in a pink fit so um, he started the school basketball team uh, he he had a different sort of relationship with the mothers of the other kids you know and so 
we would have a mass of children in our at our place after school because they love being with Charlie and his dad. You know, so it was it was a magical time for Charlie. And the wonderful thing for me now is is that Charlie has that as a role model. For Charlie, it is perfectly acceptable and perfectly normal for a dad to take a couple of years um, out of your career, a bit of a career break, um, to to be the, you know, the carer, the primary carer. I hate that term, but to be the primary carer, everybody understands what it means. So I think that's that's fantastic. And I look at young men and women of Charlie's generation now and uh, they are thinking differently to my generation, that's for sure, and they are wanting more out of their professional and their private lives. Mm. They want to take a greater role in family life. I mean, I didn't see my dad much when I was growing up. Um, that's partly the life of a politician, of course, but, but also because that's what dads did. And I think the other thing that we've got to remember is that we have placed a big burden on the shoulders of men for a long, long time. And that has been the burden as a primary, as, as the main breadwinner. And uh, I've experienced that being the main breadwinner when Michael took time out, but also after Michael died. Mm. And it is a huge burden to have to wear. And I think that we need to ensure that we understand as women that whilst we want to share that responsibility, for men to give up that responsibility overnight is unreasonable. Uh, we need to help them share that responsibility with us. We can't expect it to happen today mm. because giving up any responsibility, you know, it's in the mindset because we've been doing it for hundreds of years. So to give up any responsibility like that is going to take time and we need to work with men and we need to understand that it's not that they don't want to, it's sometimes that... It, you know, it's just hard. They don't know how. You know, when you've done something for so long, how do you all of a sudden give it up? It's a bit like smoking, isn't it? You know, it's, it becomes almost an addiction. And so I'm very conscious of the fact that we need to understand that it has been a responsibility for men. We need to help them, help them move part of that responsibility to women if that's what a couple want mm, mm. and not all, not all women want it and not all women need to do it but there are more women and families now that both want to take on some of that responsibility but also need to and so we need to be understanding and helpful. Libby, do you have thoughts on how to make mentoring programs work well in workplaces? Um... Look, to be, to be absolutely frank with you, I have never been part of a formal mentoring process. I have program. I have always informally mentored young women and young men and I continue to do and I think that, that is, it gives me one of the, the greatest joys in life to see young people move on and learn and listen 
and achieve great things and uh, that what greater joy can you get out of life? I mean, really, um, uh, I love what, what I am loving seeing at the moment in a lot of really smart organisations are sponsorship programs where um, men in particular are sponsoring women, uh, which means that... Um, you know, not only are they coaching them and mentoring them, but actually when those women aren't present in meetings where opportunities may be arising or thoughts are given about career progression and succession planning and things, uh, these men are actively advocating on behalf of that woman and saying, well, hold on, if there's a role, you know, in the refinery, um, what about you know, young Samantha, what mm. about giving her a go? You know, she's smart and we know that, um, you know, if we're to get more women into senior leadership roles, they need operational experience. So we've got to start start giving them opportunities for that. So for me, some of these sponsorship programs that I'm seeing come into place in workplaces are fantastic. What about on the issue of sexual harassment? Um, my former academic colleague, Deborah Cobb-Clark, argues that this is one of the sort of hidden causes of, uh, of gender pay inequity uh, because of the role that it can play in uh, shaping uh, the jobs that people go into, career career opportunities, people's willingness to, uh, to uh, stay in certain environments. Has the Me Too movement been... Uh, useful in terms of uh, uh, reducing the incidence of, uh, of sexual harassment and, and what other things ought we be doing to, uh, to, to stamp out sexual harassment in the workplace? I think the thing about the Me Too campaign is that um, as a result I'm feeling, I, I think we're, we're seeing more momentum in the whole gender equality space, which is fantastic. I think the other thing it's done is it's put, it's put Corporate Australia um, on notice and said you can no longer ignore complaints um, that come to you. You can't sweep them under the carpet. Uh, every complaint that comes to uh, a manager has to be um, investigated and investigated properly and investigated thoroughly and to ensure that due process takes place. Um, I, th I think that that has been a fantastic thing, that for too long corporate Australia has turned a blind eye to complaints uh, that have been brought to them. Mm. I think I, I, I am still concerned that um, there are many workplaces in Australia that whilst they are changing, <coughs> excuse me, whilst, whilst they, they may be looking more closely at sexual harassment complaints and, and discrimination complaints um, and looking at their processes and their policies around that, my anecdotally, I can tell you that there are still organisations in Australia where young women are afraid to speak up about um, their experiences of inappropriate behaviour uh, for fear of what it will do for their career. Now, that greatly concerns me. And the issue here, I think, is middle management. Um, that I think we're seeing senior leaders do the right thing uh, or, or putting the right things in place, but they're not clearly that uh, 
the message and the permission for middle managers to take those complaints further and properly deal with them is not trickling down. Mm. And we, uh, you know, organisations have to address this middle management layer. We have to provide middle managers with support. We have to provide them with training and we have to provide them with permission to progress these things through the organisation if they need to be progressed without fear of retribution because I think this is what's holding middle management back. They are fearful that if they then take a complaint further up the tree, it's a it looks poorly on them as a manager. Now, this is a nonsense and we've got to get over this nonsense. Mm, mm. You know, senior leaders have to step up and realise that what they're doing in their ivory tower isn't necessarily what is happening on that shop floor. So, you know, walk the floors, I would say, to all those mainly men CEOs out there. Start walking the floors. Start really finding out what is going on in your organisation. And the same applies to boards. Boards should be out walking the floors of the organisations that they're overseeing as well. Mm. You learn a lot from talking to people who work with you at all levels in the organisation. Now, one of the things about your career is that you've seen an awful lot of Australia. Uh, you're born in Tasmania, you went to school, school in Victoria, you've worked in Northern Territory, Western Australia, and uh, now we're having this conversation in Sydney. Um, which part of Australia do you think is doing best on the gender equity front and why? Um, clearly, the, you know, I, what I see happening in, in the, head, the companies headquartered in Melbourne and Sydney seem to be doing best. That, you know, in some ways that's not surprising because competition from the, for them is greatest uh, because you're dealing with the bigger organisations. And, and uh, you know, I guess this is the wonderful thing that I've seen over the, the couple of years that I've been at the agency, and that is... Um, organisations realise, the smart organisations realise they have to act uh, because they want to stay ahead of their, a step ahead of their competitors. So in addressing gender equality, in having uh, a more gender balanced workplace, they know means that they're going to have a more engaged staff, they're going to have more innovative thinking, uh, they're going to have more sensible um, discussions around tables uh, and they're going to end up with better productivity. So they're actually acting. Mm. Um, and interestingly, if you look at company, my former company like BHP, when they analysed their own data, uh, they also found out that their work sites that had better gender balance were also safer. So when you're presented with data like that, you have a duty of care to act. Mm. So act they did. And um, and they're seeing some, some great improvements in their business, which is fantastic. So, um, but I also think it's easier for, for the bigger organisations to do things um, in terms of gender equality because they usually have a bigger budget. They have more people to help, um, to help implement these things. Uh, and, you know, they, the, you know, as well as uh, wanting to do the right thing because it, it helps their business, um, they want to be seen to be doing it too. And that's, you know, for me coming from a corporate affairs background, of course I'll always say that that we want you always want the good news story mm, and, and generally mm. they are. It's harder for smaller organisations. Um, 
I think also whilst we've seen male-dominated industries really make some big efforts in terms of uh, attracting more women to their workforces and whatever, um, if we look at the states that are traditionally resource-based, uh, Queensland and Western Australia, they aren't faring as well as the other states. So a little bit of work to do there, but, um, you know, baby steps. Just before we move on to the final batch of questions, just paint us a picture of the kind of society that you imagine for Australia in the future when we move to a more gender-equitable world. Well, the society I'd like to see is one where we don't look at gender and we don't look at colour and we don't look at religion and we don't look at people's physical attributes. It's one where I walk in in the morning and that workplace is a mirror image of the community in which I live. And the community in which I live has people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different nationalities, they look different, they speak differently. That's what I want to see and that's what I'm working towards. Libby, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Be yourself. Um, don't, don't be afraid and even when you're afraid, speak up. A little bit of a health warning there because it can, can come back and bite you, but, <laughs> you know. Um, and I guess the other thing I'd tell my teenage self is um, plan for your retirement. Plan for your retirement. One of the things that upsets me most in Australia today is that women are retiring um, with, on average, about 44% less superannuation than men. And um, I'm one of those. I don't have enough superannuation to retire on. Uh, so, um, you know, learn about money, don't be afraid of money and plan for your retirement. It's really important. And when I speak to young women today and they go, but no, I, I'm not going to have a problem with that, I've got superannuation, but we all take time out. Mm. You know, so plan. Make it your business that you are going to have enough money when you want to retire to live a comfortable life. It doesn't have to be lavish, but to live a comfortable life. A man is not a retirement plan. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? That I'd be Prime Minister. Really? At what age did you think you'd be Prime Minister? Since I was probably knee-high. And when did you cease believing it? It's not an unreasonable uh, supposition, though, given your, given yeah. your background. Uh, look, probably only in the last couple of years, probably in the last couple of years, uh, I, I have lost... Um, I'm, I'm really no longer interested in going into politics. I always was. Mm. Uh, but I now, through this role, I've realised that I can fulfil my... Um, you know, that real desire I have for public service in a different way. Mm. It doesn't have to be through being elected into Parliament. You can do it in a different way and you can be just as, um, as influential and just as able to make change as if you're a politician. 
Yes, I was talking to a school group yesterday about uh, involvement in public uh, public life and just trying to emphasise to them that there are a significant number of people outside the parliament who have more influence over the trajectory of Australian public life than a significant number of people inside the parliament. Mm. Uh, and you'd be worried if that wasn't the case. That's right. Uh, when are you most happy? When I'm with my son and, and I've remarried and my husband and I'm on the beach probably, yeah. Do you, uh, Sydney Beach or are you... Oh, I'm a bit of a bit of a West Australian beach fan. I'm afraid I, um, you know, I spend my time between Perth and Sydney, and I have to say, there's nothing like um, Cottesloe Beach. Beautiful. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, again, it's about spending time with my husband and my son. They ground me, um, and walking my gorgeous dog, who's still with me after all these years. You're an early riser, right? You're yes. normally in the office, what, 7 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, at least by 7, yeah. Does that, and does that keep you sort of mentally happy? It absolutely does because it gives me, you know, an hour and a half or two hours where I can get my reading done, I can deal with those emails, mm. uh, those LinkedIn messages, and I have this thing about absolutely... Um, uh, replying to anybody who reaches out to me because uh, it's rude not to apart from anything else. But I feel that if people make that effort, then it, the least I can do is reply. And if there's anybody out there listening and I haven't uh, s sincere apologies that you've slipped through the net. <laughs> Golly, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, uh, so... You're, you're probably in the junk mail. It's probably not yeah. Libby's fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and it does. It just sets me up. It puts me in that right frame of mind. It gets me ready for whatever else I've got on in the day. And, um, and, and uh, you know, and by the time everybody comes in, everything else is gone and I'm happy and I'm ready to start the day and be with my colleagues. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Mm, I have two, really. Um, one are Magnum Minis and the other um, is shopping for clothes, I have to say. Uh, shoes in particular? I know oh, you I have a shoes. fabulous pair of, uh, of white boots on today. Uh, look, shoes and clothes. I'm just... Uh, my husband keeps telling me that... Um, he, he's wonderful, actually. He never complains. And he keeps telling me that uh, I've been really good and I haven't spent too much money on clothes lately. But I spread it around lots of different accounts. <laughs> he's now going to learn. <laughs> so he, he doesn't tend to notice. <laughs> and finally, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think my husband, Michael. Uh, my first, my late husband, Michael, because um, I met Michael at a time when uh, I'd had this fabulous life um, as a single woman and I, I was living in London and I was travelling and doing all these wonderful things. And then we came back to Australia and we um, moved to Broome. Uh, we, we, we first moved to Perth and then we moved to Broome where he set up his own... Uh, um, legal service and um, it was the first time I'd ever really had anything to do with Aboriginal people and he and they taught me so much about the importance of a simple life. I don't know that I have a simple life but they taught me so much about the importance of a simple life and that appreciation of everybody um, and I guess I've since spent time working with Aboriginal people and the rich culture um, 
that they have and that we can learn from. And um, and he also he had this amazing ability to make everybody around him happy. And uh, I was always the warrior, and he was never the warrior. And uh, in his dying, he's taught me not to worry. Uh, and I now live for today. I can't change what I did yesterday. Um, I can maybe think about what I'd like to do tomorrow, but actually what's going to happen tomorrow is in the lap of the gods. And so um, he was just a beautiful man. Uh, he loved people and people loved him. And, uh, yeah, I think, I, think it, I think it was him. Of course, you know, your parents and your grandparents have a lot to do with it because that's who you are. That's, you know, I know where I came from. But he took me to that different level and then... And now I have George and he's taking me to another level again and, and my beautiful son. So I'm blessed. Well, Libby Lyons, thank you for your important work in making us a more equal society and uh, for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.